0: time to get dope! Welcome to Dose. You're listening to
1: Shadia Mansour,
0: Palestinian hip hop.
1: It's a Friday, October 14th. Spooky season. 11:07 a.m. here on the West Coast. We've been gone for a couple weeks. Traveling the US military bases around the world.
2: It was spooky. Very spooky. It was very spooky. We can't wait to, up to update you guys on that. Hopefully for the next episode.
3: We're back though.
2: We're back. We're back. We got a good one today, guys. Uh, welcome to Dost. Thanks for tuning in this Friday morning. I'm your host, Abby Martin. Um, You know, there's so much discussion on free speech, censorship, cancel culture in the United States from both parties, right? But the most censored topic that's always left out of the conversation still seems to be criticism of Israel. (laughs) In dozens of states across the country, there's laws on the books, of course, as many in my audience may know, prohibiting calls to boycott Israel for certain people, There's an entire lobbying organization, or several rather, dedicated to destroying the careers of professors and students who criticize Israel. And of course, the mainstream media is intolerant of any principled support for Palestinian rights. Uh, For example, I mean, the firing of Mark Lamont Hill from CNN saying, you know, from the river to the sea. Most recently, our friend Jewish journalist Katie Helper fired from the Hills Rising for writing a monologue about Israeli apartheid. So, of course, a subject that's so repressed in America is a perfect subject for us to tackle here on DOST. And for listeners who don't know, Mike and I have done tons of work on this topic. We spent several weeks in the West Bank, made tons of short documentaries for our channel Empire Files. We made a feature-length film called Gaza Fights for Freedom, all of which you can watch on our YouTube channel on Empire Files. Um, and we have tons of podcasts about it, too. Several with our guest today, Miko Pallad. Um, Check it out. Check it out and go to the Empire Files podcast wherever you stream. Our guest today, Miko, is someone I've had the pleasure of interviewing so many times, um, who really dosed me, actually, back in the day, starting with my old show, Breaking the Set. Uh, we've done tons of events together since, and I'm really proud to call him a friend. He's the perfect person to dose anyone New to this subject, and I always recommend him to people who want to learn more about the quote-unquote conflict. Miko's a special kind of commentator on this because he comes from inside, not just Israeli society, having been born and raised in Jerusalem, but comes from Israeli history itself. His grandfather, part part of a prominent Zionist family, is actually one of the signers of Israel's founding document its so-called Declaration of Independence. His father was a prominent army general who was a leader in what became known as the Six-Day War in 1967, in which Israel grabbed huge swaths of Palestinian land, which remain under military occupation today. He himself was briefly a member of the Israeli Special Forces, but quickly became a peace activist. But he would leave Israel and activism, after the peace group he worked with was hit with a grenade from a right-wing Israeli. His return to activism came in 1997, when his 13-year-old niece was killed in a suicide bombing during the Palestinian uprising. Instead of turning that loss into hate, it re-inspired Miko to fight for peace and justice, and he's been a powerful voice and advocate ever since. Miko, welcome to Dost.
1: I think you're muted Miko, still, Miko. Miko, gotta Miko, got to unmute yourself. Hold on, let me ask them. Miko, oh. me,
4: Miko, <laughs> Sorry, thought, Miko, Miko.
2: Can you hear me? There you are.
4: Hey. Oh, I thought you muted me. <laughs> I was just saying, it's so good to be with you guys again. How are you?
2: We're great, Miko. I wish that we could be joining you today. You are going to protests in New York, I hear. Big yeah. big pro-Palestine protests because um, yeah. of what's going on right now.
4: I was, you know, rage doesn't even begin to describe what I'm feeling, and I'm sure so many other people. And then there's this days of rage protest in New York I saw uh, posted by a whole bunch of groups. And so I figured I'll just hop in the car and see if I can make it on time. and Probably be late, but it doesn't matter. I got to go out there and, and be with some people who care.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's
4: why it's so great to be with you too.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, that's what I love about you. You you go to where the action is. You're always there on the front lines, and you're just tirelessly fighting for this cause, Miko. Um, you know, I, I wanted to accomplish just two things with you today, if possible. You know, first for people who may be learning about this stuff for the first time, because this is a new platform that we're doing. That kind of gives crash courses on on certain topics, Um, you know, this one, of course, breaking the myths about a subject that Americans are so heavily indoctrinated about. And as I mentioned in the intro, you know, calling Israel apartheid is still considered unacceptable, which is just fascinating considering how many human rights organizations have admitted this claim and justified it with so much evidence. Um, politics academics it's just so controversial still and and it just makes no sense especially in light of what you're seeing you know russia's invasion of ukraine the mainstreaming of uh, war being bad and resistance being good and um and of course what's happening right now as you mentioned this horrific settler violence the horrific repression um you know, Sheikh Jarrah is popping off again. I mean, there's so many things going on, the killing of several children, the killing of a couple soldiers that has caused, you know, this collective punishment. So let's let's dig into this. But before we get into what's happening right now, and just the reality of Israeli apartheid, um, I wanted to talk about your personal experience for Jewish people growing up in Israel. Because there's a mythology that Israelis are taught about the country, of course, right? And and I want to talk about how it differs from what is actually happening on the ground. What would you say is the most significant propaganda that Israelis learn, and how deep is that anti Arab racism?
4: Well, um, I mean, where do you start? I mean, it's an inherently deeply racist uh, education system. So you learn that all there is to know about Arabs is that they're, um, you know, dirty and violent and and lazy. Um, and they are, they cause problems everywhere. And that, uh, this is this being, you know, the Holy land Palestine is ours. And we have returned and we are heroic and we were weak once, but now we're strong and, uh, we should be very proud of everything that we do. And anybody who says otherwise, is just part of this larger anti-Semitic world, which we've had to deal with as Jewish people, you know, since time immemorial. It's really quite simple. That's what it is day in, day out in the school, at home, in the media, in the news. And of course, you know, over the years, the media has improved and social media is now in place. And so you hear it over and over and over. And in Israel, the media, I don't know, there's 10, I don't know how many news channels, um, it's all Fox news. I mean, it's all Fox news. Um, and I was in Palestine already four times this year. The last time I was there wow. for a whole month. And, um, and you know, just, uh, yesterday they, they, they killed, um, a couple of guys in Janine in, in, including a doctor who was on his way to help one of the injured, uh, Abdallah Boutine. I mean the, the, the violence, the, the impunity with which they commit the violence, has come to a point where um, you, you wonder if activism is enough. You wonder if you know solidarity is enough. I mean, we've reached the point where I feel like if people are not going to stand up and stand in the midst and make sure that Palestinians are safe, the Palestinians have security, the Palestinians can be safe in their land, in their home, then, we need, then somebody needs to arm the Palestinians and allow them to fight back so they have a fair chance. I mean, there is no third option. It's come to a point where it is so absurd that you've got these, you know, they call them settlers, but really these are kind of a, a civilian militia that is armed. That uh, makes the KKK, uh, you know, maybe equivalent to the KKK. I don't know, you know, and and um, and they are out there, and the soldiers are there. I'm sure the images are, you know, everybody can see the images. Of the soldiers are there to protect them as they loot and kill and destroy and damage and this is not only the west bank this is way beyond the west bank this is everywhere it's in the south in nakab it's in lid and and niafa it's it's palestinians are being beaten and uh and shot and killed just about everywhere and when palestinians try to rise and fight back when they try to really resist as they have been quite heroically, i think um they get like you said the the collective punishment and there's more killing and and more and more and more palestinians are standing up and when you look at the images you see you see this massive military force highly you know most most cutting-edge equipment and they're facing a bunch of guys in t-shirts and jeans they don't even have helmets to protect them in these in, in these gunfights when the israeli army invades so i think we should either you know Figure out a way to demand that the Palestinians are safe and se- security for Palestinians, safety for Palestinians, or arm them and allow them to fight because they're willing to fight.
2: Yeah, jumping right into it. Yeah, ju-
4: jumping right to the
2: heart of this. I mean, you know, f- f- what you just said uh, at the beginning was really important because, you know, this is a, an indoctrination that starts from birth and it just continues throughout the lives of Israelis I mean the force you know the mandatory serving in the army definitely helps militarize the entire society the forced segregation of from Palestinians you know those giant signs when you enter the occupied territories that say you're going to get killed if you enter this arena you know even um, even progressive you know p- people affiliated with progressives are scared to enter these areas it's just really sad the way that that operates and then you're mentioning what's going on right now i mean these these gangs of fascists who are armed and protected by soldiers and you know a lot of this violence has erupted with the collective punishment and these gangs retaliating by beating and burning down livestock you know 30,000 chickens in Nablus were just basically incinerated i mean so so horrific these images coming out of these settler gangs being aided and abetted by police and soldiers in reaction to what a, a young soldier who was killed at a checkpoint, right? No one asks, why, who, who is this person? Who is this young soldier? What is she guarding? What is this checkpoint? You know, and in response, you see the IDF sealing off this huge town as collective punishment, I mean, sparking huge amounts of repression. But, but you have framed this differently, as you just did, Miko, by saying, you know, all of this violence can't be seen in a vacuum. I mean, all of it originates with colonial violence, right? And daily subjugation and occupation and what Palestinians endure on a daily basis and what Palestinians do in response to that daily violence and subjugation cannot be seen in a vacuum,
4: no absolutely not I mean Palestinians have been the victims of, of ethnic cleansing and genocide um, and an apartheid regime as you said earlier uh, since the state of Israel was established since 1948 in other words these three crimes against humanity have been perpetrated by Israel and the different Zionist groups against the Palestinians from the get-go it's not like there was you know a lull there a moment of you know attempting to live at peace or anything like that. Um, and it continues to this day. I mean, it hasn't stopped for one second. There have been some, you know, some ups and downs, but basically it hasn't already stopped. And right now, uh, Israel and the Israeli authorities don't even see the need to pretend that they're not violent lunatics, you know, that they are somehow, you know, because in the past, Israeli politicians tried to demonstrate that they actually want peace, that they're making an effort while they were committing these crimes. Now they don't even bother. And everything is out in the open and everything is in broad daylight and the killing and so on takes place. And so this is, this is it's, of course, it's not in, in, a, in, a, in, in a vacuum. And one of the problems is that those of us who care, those of us who want to do something, we're always 10 steps behind. Uh, and that's a serious problem. We're always protesting and we're always going out after somebody was killed, after there was a, another massacre, after there was another assault on Gaza. Um, and by the way, you, that the movie you guys made about Gaza is phenomenal. And so, I mean, the, and, and so we're always out, we're always behind them and we need to start catching up so that we're ahead of the game. And I think one of the things we need to do is to change the framing. It's not about, it's not about providing safety and security for the poor Israelis who are being attacked by terrorists. It's about standing up and providing safety and security for Palestinians who have been victims of terrorism on a huge scale, on a, on a monumental scale. I mean, the, the Israeli terrorism is a massive army, but it's, it's no less of a terrorist organization, but it's a massive army and i participated like you said earlier in the intro in that in that and my father was one you know was a major figure in the in the building and the and the establishment of this army and so i grew up with this you know adoring this army and admiring it and you know i knew the ranks all the different ranks of the military before i could i knew my abc's you know it was that that deep but then you get to a point and sadly, you know, like you mentioned in the intro, you, you get to a point where, you, you know, transformation only is a result or usually is a result of something terrible. And in, in my case, it was, it was the killing of my niece. But the reality is that this is, this is something that's been going on for a very long time. It's not in a vacuum. Palestinians are killing soldiers and, you know, they have every right to kill soldiers. I mean, that's the, the, they're being killed by soldiers. They're being tortured by soldiers. They're being oppressed and they're being held back by soldiers. In other words, so when they kill soldiers, they're called terrorists. When they kill civilians, they're called terrorists. When they, when they protest peacefully, they're called terrorists. When they call for boycott, they're called terrorists. So in other words, there's not really much of an option for Palestinians besides, you know, fighting. I mean, they, they got to do, you know, the, the expectation that they're going to sit around and do nothing is really not a realistic expectation. So we need to, you know, that, that's, that's, that's kind of the, in a way, the larger context.
1: Yeah, Miko, you know, I, I think last time we talked, you made the very important point that, you know, well, like violent attacks against Israeli civilians and soldiers, which is much more common. And as you mentioned, they have every right to they actually have the every right to under international law. International law protects um, the attacks on occupying soldiers on occupied people, which is exactly what uh, what that is. And so that's not just like <laughs> someone's yelling at you. Is yeah it? i'm sorry Is an israeli no, no, sorry, guy sorry, sorry. <laughs> Is <this> israeli guy <laughs> trying to stop you from the protest you heard what exactly.
4: you said um, exactly and what are you talking about no, no. they see my palestinian i've got a palestinian flag on my car and oh, my car oh and shit. more often than not more often than not i get people giving me like a fist and, like, oh say, nice hey, that's great they you don't know, wear support so that's 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 the kind of stuff that i that i experience mostly but yeah <laughs> nice. sorry about that <laughs> no worries um
1: but anyway yeah so uh, you know you mentioned that uh, armed attacks are a legitimate form of resistance when you know on soldiers um and, uh, but but, you also made the point that by and large, the Palestinian freedom movement right now, the mass movement. Is not adopting armed struggle as their primary mode of resistance that that peaceful protest and trying to win the sympathies of the world and the United Nations and advancing the the peaceful boycott divestment sanctions movement. That is the primary mode of struggle for the mass movement in Palestine now, which is different from past eras and uprisings when they did have material support from the outside and were able to wage armed struggles. They have kind of adopted this other mode of struggle which you know also gets called terrorism but i i did want to give some context to the the killings of these soldiers so i think the first soldier that was killed was this 18 year old young woman um who was killed uh quote unquote just protecting was she like checkpoint. from san
2: jose or boston or something or? i think she
1: was israeli born oh, okay. uh she looked like she <laughs> could have been from san jose uh, a lot of them are um but you know i think first of all when a lot of the Israeli uh, media and American media about this has been, "Oh, this poor, you know, teenage kid, you know, that that was killed." I think it's an important point that when you turn eighteen, you are required to go in the Israeli military, and if you don't want to, you go to prison instead. And so it's uh, it's really government's fault that this eighteen year old young woman was uh, at this checkpoint. But but this thing is presented; she was protecting a checkpoint without any other context. And so I think if you could just really quickly explain. What those checkpoints are, I mean, when I went to Palestine, I think the thing that struck me the most, and we went in 2017, is I thought I knew a lot about what it was like there. And the thing that shocked me the most was in the the West Bank and the occupied territories where, where Palestinians have to live and travel through, it is just it is such a heavy military occupation. It literally reminded me of the Iraq war, the U.S. occupation of Iraq checkpoints everywhere, soldiers everywhere, randomly raiding people, harassing people like machine gun nests just posted up wherever like cars getting shot up. It's just it's so in your face, the occupation. I don't think Americans really get that. That's what it's like for Palestinians. It's not Israel's over here, Palestine's over here. And there's like clashes at the border and with people going in and out. It's like on top of Palestinians wherever they are. And so when you hear that an Israeli soldier was killed at a checkpoint, can you in your experience of being there so many times, explain to people who don't really know about it what what it really means that there are checkpoints and, and what Palestinians have to go through uh,
4: under occupation like this. Well, in this particular case, um, in this particular case, this was in Shafat. Shaf, so around, around Jerusalem, actually part of mu- the municipality of Jerusalem, there are several refugee camps and these refugee camps are like little towns. Um and so uh, this was in Shafat. Uh, so the checkpoints, you know, um, are there to harass the Palestinians who live in these big neighborhoods, these refugee camps, uh, as they go in and out. Now they pay taxes to the municipality of Jerusalem. They get no services they get no rights, they're treated, I mean, they get nothing. I mean, the piles of trash and, and, and the filth and the lack of roads and the water and so on and so on, even though again, they are part of the Bismillah in Jerusalem. And there are checkpoints, you know, there are checkpoints to harass them and sometimes they'll close the checkpoint, sometimes the checkpoint's open and these checkpoints are manned uh, sometimes by soldiers, sometimes by, armed, by the militarized police, sometimes by contractors, depending on the, the case. And so she was uh, she was standing at one of these checkpoints, you know, and the checkpoints are really like uh, the, the, the soldiers' checkpoints are prison guards. They're not de- protecting anyone. They are holding the prisoners who are the Palestinians in and monitoring their movement. It's not about defending or protecting anyone. None of the checkpoints are protecting anyone. The checkpoints are there to harass and monitor the Palestinian movement. That's what it's all about. And particularly where there's a large Palestinian uh, community, a large Palestinian population, close to an israeli population which is the case in jerusalem um, then it's even more severe and the slightest uh, little thing will, will spark will start problems now in shafat particularly as well as in a couple of other these uh these large na- palestinian neighborhoods around jerusalem so we uh, and a few others there have been massive protests over the last uh week or two massive massive protests now these places have always been you know, courageously, uh, resisting one way or the other. Like you described, the vast majority of Palestinian resistance has always been unarmed. They've tried everything and they continue to try everything. Um, and so this particular soldier was killed at a checkpoint, uh, in Shafat and, you know, the, and, and, and I don't know if you saw there were videos. There was actually a video of a guy, you know, a car going through, uh, several cars going through. This car was waiting, uh, to go through the checkpoint. This guy comes out, shoots, I think he killed her, injured one or two others and just ran off. Um, and, and you wonder how long are people expecting Palestinians to live under these conditions? And it's not just economic conditions, not just like, it's not just the, the lack of services. It's the ongoing killing. It's the ongoing arrest. It's the ongoing torture. It's the ongoing home demolitions. And so, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a, it's a brutal kind of oppression. It's a brutal kind of occupation. Um, right. Right, I mean, so that's that's a reality, and this is this is Jerusalem. In other words, this is not even considered. This is not even considered uh, the West Bank. And in terms of the soldiers, you know, I mean, you grow up from a certain point. I don't know, high school. You're excited to go to the army. You know, the few people that that refuse. I mean, first of all, especially for girls, it's very easy to get out. Uh, Very, very easy to get out. I mean, more than fifty percent of girls don't even go for one reason or another. It's actually very easy. And for guys too, it's not that hard. You don't even have to say you're refusing on moral grounds. You could say you miss your mommy or something and, and they don't want you. <laughs> um, if you do dare to say that you're a conscientious objector, then you go to jail. But even though you go to a military prison for three weeks, it's not, you know, you don't go. It's not like you're going to, you know, uh, Folsom prison or anything like that. And so you go to a military prison for a few weeks in and out and then you're, and then you're, you're sent home. So there's, there's really no sacrifice them that, that, that you have to, you know, it's really no sacrifice to refuse. It's the right thing to do. And it's very easy. The ones who, do, who don't refuse, the ones who go, want to go, and they're motivated. And I was motivated. And I remember that sense when you're in high school and all your friends who might be a little bit older than you or a year ahead of you, or you know, if you have siblings, they go through it and you get all excited um, and you think you're doing the right thing. I mean, you you see Arabs as, as a nuisance that deserve to be living in these conditions and to be killed constantly, and you're happy to take part of it.
2: Right, I mean I, I understand Israeli society being indoctrinated into that line of thinking. What I don't understand is American society being indoctrinated into thinking that they need to go serve on behalf of a foreign military to police and subjugate Arabs. It is just the most bizarre colonial mentality and it's just such a fucking crazy ass thing that we are producing here in this country because so many Amer- I mean I just I'll never forget like what was it the 2014 war when it was like Twelve Americans had died. Like I was 12 just like out of the twenty, Israelis like what? Like holy shit! How? Like UCLA why? Students fighting in Gaza. Um, but I mean, the the checkpoints. It's such a good point what you're bringing up because it is. There's so many. There's so numerous, and it and they really are designed to just torture Palestinians. I mean, the first thing that we saw, Mike, when we got off the plane and we were driving from Tel Aviv into the West Bank, we saw an ambulance stopped and a body being pulled out to check. For I don't know, you know, just to basically prolong help or aid getting to anyone. Of course, we know that they don't even allow ambulances through. I mean, that's just one of dozens of crazy stories that we had just in our in our couple weeks there. I can't even imagine what you've seen. I just read an article about how they now have automated machine guns yeah. on some of these checkpoints yeah. as well, yeah. as well yeah. as armed drones flying around. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's just so dystopian and disturbing Um, Mike, did you want to?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I
2: yeah like right after
1: that amb- like actually within a couple hours of us getting to Palestine, um Israeli soldiers had murdered an elderly farmer who was just walking on his land and like didn't turn around fast enough when the soldiers told him to turn around and we went to the memorial right after he was killed, and when we were leaving the memorial, we got attacked by Israeli they were just attacking everyone who was leaving the guy's memorial in the middle of the night. I mean that was just like within the first like eight hours of being there, we had these like really wild experiences um but, you know, I did want to ask, Miko, before we move on, like, so I, I think what the Israeli propaganda would say when you say that, oh, you're everyone's taught to be racist and we need this, you know, like we're this. It's not really about security. It's about controlling Palestinians. Well, I think they would say that, you know, Palestinians, they teach hatred of Jews and they just want to kill Jews and attack them. And that if these checkpoints weren't there, they would just like kill jewish civilians and that's really the propaganda and you've just you've spent so much time in palestinian society and you know what is your impression of like does it go both ways and i think you know we published this really popular video where abby's interviewing israelis on the streets of jerusalem and they all say horrible genocidal shit the number one response we get to that is like well if you talk to palestinians they'll say the same thing you know it's it's hate versus hate and what do you expect you know so what in your experience what is what is the reality there?
2: Yeah, because all because the argument is that Palestinian liberation is predicated on the erasure and genocide of Jews. So, I mean, what, yeah, yeah, what have you experienced? You know, you,
4: were, you were talking earlier, I just want to back up, back up a tiny bit, Abby. You talked, you mentioned, uh, you know, this madness here, the Americans going to serve in, in the Israeli army, this whole American support and admiration of, of everything Israeli. You know, the Zionists have spent a lot of done, done a lot of really, really good work and you know, good you know, as in, you know, effective uh, here in America to get to the point where anybody you ask on the street about Israel, they'll say how much they love Israel. And of course, the American Jews are happy to go serve and that sort of thing. In other words, it, it didn't, This didn't happen in a vacuum either. They planned this and they've been doing this for over a hundred years. So they know what they're doing and this is why we see what we see. And this is why so many of the soldiers you encounter uh, throughout the West Bank and, and other places uh, have This American accent is because this is this is is part of that. And it's also why American politicians and Americans in general, when you talk about Israel, they have especially the Israeli military, you know, there's a sense of admiration and and all that. So that was built in. And that's, you know, it's and, and as you know, it's it's in the American school books. It's in the American textbooks. It's in social studies. You know, it's really hammered in that Israelis are the good guys and that sort of thing. Um, so, so I think you know that's 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 just um uh, you know the, the the nature of this beast that it's a very very effective one and it works very very well. Um, you know, uh, remind me again what the what was what was your point oh you the, me the, the the idea
1: the the counter argument to Israeli racism oh, yes. that Palestinians yeah. are taught to think the same thing.
4: You know, let me let me tell you a story. I was there, of course, in 2014 during the massive massacre in Gaza. And there were, they, you know, and Israeli soldiers were were going up and down the West Bank and killing and and, and there was some tension everywhere. It was, um, you know, especially, go, well, not everywhere. Israelis were quite relaxed, of course, because they're quite, their, their lives are not really affected by this. But but on the Palestinian side, and and um, most of the cabs are in Jerusalem, most of the cab drivers are Palestinians. And I took a cab somewhere and, you know, you could feel the tension in the car. So I started talking to the cab driver. Um, and so he calmed down a little bit and he opened up and he started saying, you know, how, you know, how wonderful it would be if we could all just, you know, hold hands and, and, and stop killing, you stop this killing, stop this fighting, you know, I mean, the Jews and, and Arabs, and Jews and Muslims have a history, a long, long history of living together, you know, what, what the hell's going on? And he's just kind of puzzled by, you know. Why can't we just go back to that? Why can't we just live, you know, together and and overcome this? At the same time, anybody you spoke to on the street was going to say what they said to you, Abby, when you were on the street interviewing them. We got to kill more. We're not killing enough. They're criticizing the government. They were criticizing the government in 2014 for pulling out of Gaza too soon. And if you remember, there were some very heavy casualties to the Israeli forces. I mean, there was there, there were massive forces inside Gaza, and they were hit pretty badly. And you know, several officers, high-ranking officers, were killed, which is one of the reasons they pulled out, especially the ground forces. And they were being criticized for not killing enough. And the and the, the commentators on the news and the people in the street that was, as of course everybody's sitting in you know in coffee shops and restaurants and going out and you know feeling happy. About what's going on. The only criticism was, why isn't the government killing more? That's the reality, and that's how it, that's how it is. And if you went on the streets, uh, in any street, almost in Palestine, in North, west, you know, North, South, East, West, the West Bank, not West Bank, Jerusalem, you'd see that. It's very, very easy to see. There's one discourse on the Palestinian side: how do we end this and live like normal people? And another discourse on the Israeli side, which is how do we kill more Arabs? Yeah, you and know, I know that sounds extreme, but that's really if you, if you look at if you if you have these conversations, that's what you're going to hear.
1: Yeah, that's that's what we experienced too. I mean, we went to a village that was being ethnically cleansed by Israeli settlers, which the settlements were even illegal under Israeli law at the time. Um, but I remember we were in this one home, you know, ancestral home, and there was just settler trailers in the hilltops all around that are always shooting at his house and stuff like that. And even him, that the man who lives in that house, he was even like hey, if these settlers want to move, there's plenty of land. Like, if, if they want to move in here, that's fine. We can be neighbors, but why do you have to move in a hilltop overlooking yeah. my house and then, like, shoot at and me and try to me. kick me out? He's yeah. like, just move in and be normal. You know, it wasn't even like, yeah. we don't want juicier. Uh-huh. here.
2: It was like, can you just, like, be be nice to us? And, like, we have no problem yeah. with you living here. It was really, really stunning. I mean, it's just so crazy to actually just take a sampling of just a random 10 people within a course of two hours in the streets of Jerusalem and hear the vitriol that is spoken about openly endorsing genocide. I have never experienced anything remotely similar. I feel like it really is akin to like what you would hear in like Germany, like in the early 1930s. I mean, it really is
4: like very vicious. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw, like the most popular politician in Israeli politics today is Itamar Ben-Kvir, who is this lunatic settler um, You know, he makes, if you guys remember, Mayor Kahana, this lunatic uh, racist uh, who started this movement to expel the Jews and this whole, you know, violent settler movement in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, he was in the Knesset also at one point. He, he, this is one of his students and he's 10 times worse. Uh, he's the most popular politicians. And I got a call this morning from Ofer Kasif, who's a Knesset member from Hadash, which is kind of like what used to be the Communist Party. And he's one of the smartest, one of the most dedicated, had a lifelong of activism, brilliant guy. And he called me this morning, uh, elections are coming up, and, and he said, and I was actually going to talk to you about this anyway, he, he said, you know, people aren't getting it. The violence by the settlers and all these people who follow this Ben Gvir guy who lives in, in Hebron, a settler in Hebron, you know, he's armed, he's got a gun, he goes into Sheikh Jirach, he instigates. He pulls out his gun. And he's know, he's also fair, a politician, fair. right? I mean this. And guy... he's a member of Knesset. He's actually yeah. was allowed to run. He was prohibited in the past and then there was some kind of compromise. And he's in the Knesset. And he's actually one of a few Israelis who has actually been designated as a terrorist. Wow. In other words, he was designated as a terrorist. Um and uh there's some great work by by David Sheen showing how these people have kind of Entered the mainstream and how how very effective their work has been in entering the mainstream. The we used to be used to be they used to be outcasts, and they used to be very few. And now they are they are mainstream and they're everywhere. So anyway, the point is, Ofra Kasif was calling me and he was saying, you know, uh, li- liberal Jews. I mean, people in America they got to realize they need to realize what the hell is going on here because these settlers are 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 out of their minds, out of control. They're killing people. They're destroying stuff every single day. There's no real reporting of, of, of this, Um, you know, and he was obviously very eager to, to speak, uh, to speak to American audiences, whether through programs like yours or through, you know, other, other, other avenues to to get people to understand just how serious this is, how violent and, 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 uh, and, Really, they just, you know, wander around the streets, walk into... And again, it's not only the West Bank. They're in Lid. You know, last May, in Lid, there were 500 of these guys who were brought into the city, armed, and they were going through the city, destroying, shooting, and they're housed in in the city hall by the mayor of the city. You know, this is Israel proper. This is, Lid is where the Israeli Tel Aviv airport is. It sits actually on occupied Lid. So, I mean, it's, they're everywhere and they have a free hand. And as you know, everybody knows, and you know, it's very well. I mean, the police, the army or the police, whatever the case may be, are always protecting them against the evil Arabs, the evil Palestinians. This is a a, a, a madness. And, and the $3.8 billion goes to them from American taxpayers' money is, is, is the worst, is the worst thing that could possibly happen. This is, this is, you know, Nobody here can say, unless they stand up and they scream at the top of their voices, like you guys do, that they are not, uh, that they're not part of this crime.
2: It really is like you the know, KKK uh, policing black neighborhoods. I mean, armed to the teeth, backed by the state. It, it is yeah, so disturbing to see
4: these and, people. And yeah. and this money is coming from us. And our yeah. our, 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 our elected officials are, are voting to send this money. You know, every January, they push a button. You know, this is this is the this is the worst kind of of, of participation in, in in genocide, and it doesn't stop, and it's got to stop, and it's got to be reversed. The support has to be the true the Palestinians. The Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean has got to get in there and stop Israel. You know, they've got to act. The, the, the talking about BDS, talking about this and that and the other. It's no it's longer enough. Israel has got to understand there have to be, you know, Israeli embassies, Israeli consulates around the country. They ha, You know, there has to be a siege around all of them. They have to understand that they are not going to be permitted to, to live this this love life of, 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 you know, of freedom as long as they continue to do this. They can't just act with impunity anymore. But there are going to be consequences. They have to be thrown out of every capital around the world. But until then, at least we should be standing there with big posters with vigils you know with like a siege you know i mean there has to be some serious action taking place because this is gone above and beyond a long time ago but certainly now above and beyond and like you said Abby when we spoke it was before it was just before 2020 and you talked about the un report that said that by 2020 gaza was going to be unlivable and of course we're way past 2029 now Nothing's changed. Things have only become worse. And what is the world waiting for? What are we waiting for? You know, we've got to be better at bringing about change on this issue.
2: Right. It's just 70 plus years. I mean, it's it's just the normalization of this daily colonial violence that continues. And it's just perplexing, honestly, that people I mean, I do I do think, of course, and this is reflected in polling that American perception has changed uh they think that israel is not you know especially democratic party voters now think israel is to blame but it's like it's happening so slowly and palestinians are dying at the hands of american empire and its proxy um every single day and it's like how how, you know i mean it's just crazy and like like you said i mean these settlers are paid by these massive billionaire-backed organizations like sheldon adelson of course that news came out that basically he just gave trump what a, a giant fat check to do the the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, that was just some quid pro quo thing and then it resulted in you know, horrific casualties, the great March of return. You look yeah. at polling in Israeli society. The vast majority of Israelis agreed with the shoot to kill policy, agreed with what happened there. Uh, 60 plus unarmed civilians being gunned down in one day by Israeli snipers. The front page of the New York Times the day after said, you know, Israelis reflect was every um, was every bullet, you know, justified. It's like, what about the Palestinian families that lost all of these people for peacefully resisting, you know, this this caged existence that they live under where water is rationed, where movement is restricted i mean it's just it, it's disgusting it's disgusting and i want to i want to go back to ben devere because this is this guy to really hammer this home right now i mean this this far right and i don't really even know how you can ju- like even explain what the far right is compared to what the right wing is compared to what the centrists are because it seems yeah, like it's very all, little difference, very little difference but this guy is on video with a gun Again, yeah. Arabs cannot – they are unarmed. You know, large, I, mean, I know that there is armed resistance, but they are not allowed to have guns in their homes. They're, their homes are routinely searched, demolished, and whatever, and if they have weapons, they're probably just executed on site. But this guy is on video with a gun in Sheikh Jarrah this week declaring yeah. to settlers surrounding him to shoot any Palestinian that they see yeah. throwing a stone. I mean, he's just yeah. ginning up this crowd, being like, "Yeah, let's go, just gun these people down." It is so surreal
4: in twenty. And people in never throw stones. The the protests in Shushirah that nobody's ever thrown stones. I mean, I've been to millions. I don't know how many of those protests. Palestinians march. They never threw a stone. Palestinians in Shushirah abide by the by the uh, nonviolent code one hundred and ten percent. There's <laughs> never been one incident. The only incidents of violence are by the police. Uh, massive amounts of, of, of beatings and violence and by the settlers. I mean,
2: talk about how this works. Like Pete, like uh, these settlers are just able to just have carte blanche to r- roam around, do this v- egregious violence, kill people. And uh, it, but, but then again, Miko, the Israeli government and, of course, American politicians continue to declare that these settlers don't represent Israeli mainstream society. Yeah. So they're able to pivot away from it and just say, oh, yeah, you know, these people are just kind of the extremist wing, but they're all backed by the state and they're all like essentially proxies. Yeah, there's well,
1: a, definitely the, this. There, It's definitely part of this like propaganda that there is like a liberal Israeli society and they're in like this conflict with like a more religious extremist, even in like TV shows. It's like uh, a lot of times you'll see like, oh, there's these like kind of like hippie Israelis that, you know, they want Israel to be like it's supposed to be. But then there's these you know, extremists, that have some kind of power. And I feel like it kind of distorts what what that reality is.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the establishment, the Israeli establishment, always wanted to be able to maintain deniability. So, you know, in the 1940s, leading up to 48, there were these young, you know, kind of like my dad, who joined all these militias and all these, uh, you know, uh, all these groups that eventually became the Israeli army, but they were just, they were basically terrorists. So, uh, as long as they maintained what the government saw as, 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 um, reasonable violence and killing, it was okay. But then you had, for example, Dir which is a very high profile massacre right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Um, and again, these militia were paid for. These militia were completely, completely, um, <laughs> You know that they were armed by the, by the mainstream Zionist organizations, which later on of course became the government, and so the government maintained deniability, but at the end of the day said, well, yes, it's a terrible thing they did all these things, but you know what, thankfully, because of what these massacres, because of these massacres or thanks to these massacres, we have this you know massive you know massive uh, amounts of Palestinians that were uh, that ran away. So we could never have had a Jewish state if they didn't run away. So at the end of the day, even though these massacres may have not been to our taste, it worked out actually pretty well for us. And that's how it's always been. Today, you know, you've got the Ben-Gvir types and the settlers in Hebron and people like that, which mainstream Israelis and the government like to maintain some kind of deniability. But like I said, they're armed, paid for, supported completely by Israeli society by and large, and by the uh, and by the government. I mean, who supplies them with the weapons? You know, who most of them live in subsidized housing. Most of them, you know, don't don't do real real work and stuff like that. So, I mean, this is the reality. So they maintain this distance so that they can maintain deniability. But then you look at the, the Israelis go to vote and look who they voted for. Like you said, there's you can hardly there is no difference, certainly not on this issue between the far right, the extreme far right, the extreme, extreme far right, and what is called mainstream or kind of the more centrist uh, politicians. There is no difference on this issue because, you know, if you look at, you know, Gantz, for example, who is now the defense minister, or Omar Barlev, who is the minister for internal internal affairs and kind of homeland security kind of thing, I mean, they were both generals. I mean, they were both, you know, they were both dedicated their, their entire lives to killing Palestinians. You know, Gans was the chief of staff in 2014. So this is the, these are the people who are now representing the mainstream. They've killed a lot more than any, than any Ben Gvir or any settler could ever dream of killing, because most of these guys don't serve in the army, these settlers. Um, but, you know, so, I mean, how do you tell the difference? Well, there is no difference. One represents the other. One works for the other as kind of the, as kind of the forward force. You know, they're like the forward. They do the, these things. Then the army comes in and then the government comes in. And now it's become mainstream. That's kind of been the process. So the people like my dad in the forties were these young zealots who committed the crimes of 1948, who committed the massacres and the ethnic cleansing of 1948. Later on, they became the generals and the ministers and the members of Knesset, and they were completely mainstream. They were fine. Now, after 1967, you have this new generation of these kind of settlers who are kind of a little more religious, or a little more, you know, uh, into you know wearing the kippa and all that kind of stuff, as though as though they are working uh, on a more kind of a religious agenda. But it's the exact same thing, and the government provides them with everything they possibly need. But if they go a little bit, you know, if they cross a certain line, then the government will, you know, maintain deniability but still support them. And the soldiers know their job is not to protect Palestinians. Their job is to protect the Jews. Their job is to protect the Israelis no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people
2: remember that infamous clip last year of that guy in Sheikh Jarrah just being like, hey, if I don't take your house, someone else will.
1: The guy from Brooklyn.
2: Yeah, the guy from Brooklyn, just super American dude, just plopped in the middle of a Palestinian village, just seizing someone's home. I mean, they just wait for people to leave their homes and then they just take them over. We've seen countless videos like Like leave to go shopping. Yeah, like literally leave their home. They're like, all right, we move in. I mean, Hebron is, of course, the most visceral example of this going on where it's just a ghost town of Palestinians who, you know, whose homes have been taken over. And then you have the partition of fenced off, you know, basically stories where Palestinians live underneath fences where it's just thrown with trash and sewage and they're just constantly harassed by the settlers who live on top of them. It's it's one of the most surreal things I've ever seen. I encourage people to look at photos of that. Um, let's talk about what's happening now and where it could go. Because you mentioned that Israeli forces have besieged this Shuafat, um, this this refugee camp in occupied East Jerusalem, where I think like 140,000 people are living right now, and Palestinians are engaged in sustained protests in response. There's mass protests going on. You know, tear gas fired from Israeli soldiers have already killed an infant. But what's happening is really interesting because it reminds me of what happened just a little over a year ago where rampant settler violence and attacks in Sheikh Jarrah initiated Hamas's response from Gaza which seemed kind of an unprecedented you know at least in recent years coordination of resistance in both territories um to basically coordinate you know responses that were going on the West Bank what do you think could come of this i mean do you do you see a similar type of situation maybe escalating That could then in turn cause, you know, another, of course, brutal retaliation from Israel. And then in conjunction with that, I just saw you talking about, you know, these two right-wing freedom freedom fighters, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, entering Al-Aqsa and the whole battle Uh, around Al-Aqsa. Yeah, no, they... Yeah, they were being escorted I into Al-Aqsa. Not, yeah. I did not see it. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess just talk about like what what is going on right now? Where could it go? And then just the whole battle around Al-Aqsa um, related to the right wing also.
4: Well, you know, one of the things that we saw last May and that Palestinians reminded the world is that there's one Palestine, it's from the river to the sea. All these divisions: Gaza, West Bank, 48, uh, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. The, the, you know the, these were created by by the colonizers. they have nothing to do with the Palestinians, and what this you know these these different categories, different you know areas, regions that were created by Israel do is they allow they they force Palestinians to deal with their own problems without and, and 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 don't give them the possibility to really work together. That's really what it's about. but what happened last last you know we saw. Massive protests everywhere. We saw this kid go on a pole in Lid, which is, like I said, it's a minute from Tel Aviv. Lid is where Tel Aviv Airport is. You know, it's historically, of course, a Palestinian city that was occupied in '48, and um, and and throw out the Israeli flag and stick a Palestinian flag. And this is the, like the heart of is of what's considered Israel, you know, by by. by um, by most of the world. Right, and, clair- and clarify and then,
2: that that's illegal. Like, people don't understand the no, nature of the occupation. You complaint. cannot hold up Palestinian flags.
4: More than, more than illegal, it's inconceivable that somebody, <laughs> you know, and then they went on Tel Aviv in Tel Aviv University, which also sits on several Palestinian-destroyed uh, villages, and there were protests there and massive amounts of Palestinian flags. In Saba, in, in the Nakba in the south, the same thing. And, of course, in Gaza, they're protesting now would I think kind of, and and of course the villages like Nabi Saleh and all the, I mean, Nazareth, you name it, all of Palestine stood as one nation, as one country, and they were able to do this for the first time in a very long time. Like you said, this was really almost unprecedented since, I think, 1948. Um, and since then, there has been this collaboration, more or less. I mean, it's very difficult because uh, the Israeli intelligence services and the PA intelligence services work together to, to, to suppress this, but they have been successful in, 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 working together. Now, Al-Aqsa, that's something I've been talking about for several years now. I mean, Israel for Israelis, Al-Aqsa uh, is, 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 is a, is a thorn. It's like a, a thumb in their eye. They believe, and I'm talking about mainstreams, not the typical settler. I'm talking about people who are like me, grew up like me, you know building the temple again, even for completely secular Israelis is a big deal it's a national it's kind of a national goal until we build and and when I kind of as i was I was writing a couple of articles about this a few years ago, and I was remembering all these childhood songs that I used to say with everybody in class and whatever. Uh, about the build. one day we will build a temple, we will build a temple, we will build a temple. Why the hell do we, what the fuck do we ever be, care about this stupid temple? Since when do we even believe in these things, right? We're completely secular. And then I remember the song called Jerusalem of Gold, which became very famous after the Six-Day War. It was commissioned two weeks before the war as part of the campaign to gain public, uh, public support for the war and apply pressure on the government to start the war. And then two weeks after the war, after Jerusalem was taken, um, they adjusted the song and they added a few more stanzas. And, you know, cause at first it said, you know, this poor city sitting alone and empty, the streets are empty. No one is praying on the Temple Mount. No one is praying on the Temple Mount. And suddenly two weeks later, she changed. they changed it. And, you know, suddenly again, we can hear the Temple Mount, people praying on the Temple Mount. What do we care about the Temple Mount? And then the most iconic line from the 1967 war is when the commander of the paratroopers who took the Temple Mount in the old city, you know at Temple Mount, I use, you know I use the Zionist uh, name for it. Um, he said over the radio, "The Temple Mount is in our hands," and that is iconic. It is used in every bit of propaganda today. The Temple Mount is in our hands. He's, he's a secular Israeli Zionist. What the hell does he care about the Temple Mount, one way or the other? And suddenly, all you had all these images of soldiers and generals who never saw a synagogue in their life praying and crying on the te- on the Western Wall, like you know they've yearned for this their whole lives.
5: What the hell do they care about this anyway? None of these people cared about this <laughs> yeah, anyway. isn't
1: it? Isn't it from like isn't it you like know? some Old Testament shit or something? Like even rebuilding a temple that's like Old Testament
4: None of us were, right, but suddenly it became a thing. So, and today what we're seeing is. You know, uh, that it's become mainstream. And the whole Temple Mount movement, which, you know, 30 years ago was made up of 10 or 15 loonies, is massive. And I've gone on the Temple Mount tours twice with the settlers. Once when I was there, uh, I think it was like last spring, uh, because the Temple Mount was when, you know, that was, or Al-Aqsa, that was kind of where all, everything was, you know, that was kind of the center of the uprising in a way. And uh, they go and they pray, and it's like thousands and thousands, excuse me, tens of thousands of completely secular Israelis that join these settlers in in these tours and in these prayers and in the planning of of how where the temple is going to be and where the temple used to be, and and completely disregarding, completely, completely disregarding this magnificent structure that has been the crown of jerusalem the crown of the middle east the crown of palestine for 1500 freaking years
1: yeah that's the to We're be clear kidding. rebuilding the, the temple requires demolishing, demolishing the Al-Aqsa, al-aqsa mosque
4: yeah but i mean people forget the al-aqsa mosque is greater <laughs> older more beautiful more significant than ten taj mahals can you imagine somebody saying we got to demolish the taj mahal cuz 3000 years ago there was a little tribe that lived there in that area and they had their own temple there <laughs> And now they're back. So let's demolish the Taj Mahal, which is really—it's a, a beautiful place. I've been there, but it's not Alaksa. It's not even remotely nearly as as beautiful, or 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 magnificent, or impressive as as Alaksa compound, which includes, of course, the Dome of the Rock with the golden you know the golden dome. Uh, and saying, well, we got to demolish this thing, and we got to go there, and we got to protest, and we got to build, and you know, it's ours, and this is—they have no right to have this stuff. I mean, it's absurd, right? This is what they're doing about laksin it's been for 1500 years and it's been you know cared for and and maintained by who by palestinians who've lived there and and worshiped there and built there and created this magnificent city which was jerusalem this this country magnificent country which is palestine yeah so they are after it they gotta Mm -hmm. kill it they gotta destroy it just like they gotta destroy Sheikh jirah just like they gotta destroy all these other beautiful neighborhoods in, in east jerusalem and of course, the old city, because they have to show that they this is ours. We conquered it. We're back, and we won't be back until this goddamn temple is built. It's, it's madness,
1: right? I think it's absolute madness. So I think the explanation for why all these like secular Israelis who don't believe that the the to- what is written in the Torah is really the prophecy of God or whatever, um, but so why would they attach themselves to this like religious extremist plan? It's because it's about their project of settler colonialism and of trying course, to mask yeah. it in something that seems like it's this divine writer, or whatever, when it's really just about their an excuse for them to just yeah, ethnically to crush
4: cleanse. one of the biggest symbols of Palestine. Well, what they've done is they've taken these religious stories and they said, this is not just a religious story. This, you don't have to believe in God for this. This is history. The mm-hmm. Bible is history. The old Testament is history, which is of course, uh, you know, madness, but to say, but that's what they've done. That's really the Zionists. What they've done is they're, they claim their legitimacy by saying, you know, the Bible is our history book. Palestine is our country. And by the way, Jew, being Jewish is not a religion. Being Jewish is a nationality. All three things, by the way, are completely rejected by Orthodox Jews, by Orthodox Juda- Judaism. Uh, and instead, a complete contravene Jewish law completely. Because Jewish law prohibits Jews from going on to the Temple Mount. Jewish law prohibits Jews from sovereignty oh. in the Holy Land. So they've completely twisted everything around and they said, well, you know, these Orthodox Jews don't really know much about Judaism. We understand better. It's, and really these are, these are concepts that the Zionists didn't even invent. They took from Christians. Right. From I was just going to say Christians are from evangelicals are like wrapped in, the, in the 19th well. century. Yeah. I mean, whole they other... started it. Mm-hmm. This whole idea of a return of the Jews and all this kind of stuff. Was a, was a, was a Protestant idea that, you know, late 19th century, early, early 20th century, the Zionists borrowed and then built their own thing on, on top of it. And the Jews, the Orthodox Jews to this day, they're scratching their beards. are going, what the hell are these people doing? They're, they're, they're breaking every Jewish law by doing these things. But for secular Jews, this has became a national symbol. Building the temple is a national symbol and people don't understand how dangerously close we are. Last May, there were fires. Right next to Al-Aqsa and Jews, Jewish settlers were dancing down in the plaza where the wall is, you know, just, just below the, the mosque. You know, no one's going to blow it up. No one's going to come in and destroy it. It's going to be an accident. You know, when these soldiers, dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe actually when I was there last time, uh, in August, there was a Jewish, the day the Jews commemorate the destruction of the temple. So the government allowed Thousands and thousands of settlers and and others to to, to walk around. So I I joined them to see what it was like. And, um, never a fact that it's like a cuckoo's nest. But the point is that there must have been 2,000 armed police right there. And there were some Palestinians who were allowed, you know, some Palestinian kids were, were, were shouting and stuff like that. But there was no serious, you know, nothing happened. But when the soldiers, when these armed police go into the mosque and shoot, and they shoot, and it's tear gas, and it's live ammunition, and so on, you know, these rugs, you know, it's full of rugs. For a rug to catch fire and the whole thing to fall apart would be very easy. It's it's a miracle that it hasn't happened yet. And that's how it's going to be. And then there's going to be a big fire. And it's going to be destroyed. People are going to say, oops, well, I guess I might as well build a temple now that's how it's going to happen and we're dangerously dangerously close to seeing this happen and i don't think you know a lot of people say oh my god you know the muslim world there'll be world war 3 i don't think there will be they say right. a lot of things and then it never happens but it would be a loss a colossal loss for you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of muslims and arabs and for the entire world this is a this is a treasure that cannot be that cannot even be uh, estimated, you know, in, in its, in its, and how unique and, and wonderful and special this place is. And it'll be gone. It'll be gone forever. Um, and so I, I think beyond acting because of what might happen, in other words, by being by fear, motivated by fear, we need to act in order to protect this place. Just like we need to act in order to protect Palestinians from Israelis. We need to protect Palestine from the, these settler colonizers. We need to protect Palestinians. From the Israeli violence, we need to protect Palestine and its and its riches. Like you know, obviously, Al Aqsa is, is, is the main is the main one, the biggest one, from this greedy, horrific violence that again is paid for. Is getting three or you know, almost four billion dollars a year from American taxpayers, and Americans are not even speaking up. I mean, find out where your money's going and what it's doing. Find out if you agree. You know, how does this advance American? Whatever it is, American values—if there is still such a thing—how does it advance American foreign policy? How does it advance American interest to support Israel? It's madness.
2: Well, you know, it would be a huge victory, and it seems like the goal—they're uh, inching closer to this goal every single year by trying to destroy Al-Aqsa once and for all. And just the the power that that would send reverberate throughout the Zionist community would be um, pretty unbelievable, and that's why you see. You know, grotesque racists like Ben Shapiro going there and just kind of flexing um, being part of this movement that you're talking about. But you you bring up a really important point, which is how is it that in 2022, especially when we're looking at the Democratic Party establishment and Democratic Party voters, how is it that this settler colonial violence and daily subjugation and occupation funded wholly by American taxpayers. How is it possible that this has continued to be justified as you see the same party talking about, you know, what land we're standing on, you know, doing like, um, you know, talking about Indigenous Peoples Day and just be you know, acknowledging Ukrainian resistance and how to build Molotov cocktails to kill Russian soldiers. And, you know, you even see them basically justifying um this and and a lot of israelis justifying this by saying you know using oh well native americans you know this is what you guys did first and and we did it too so are you guys supposed to give all your land back to natives i mean it's just so many levels of kind of insane thinking but it's just so it's just even more bizarre when you look at today like kind of the woke culture and embracing wokeness and embracing, you know, the rights of like oppressed minorities and stuff like that, and trying to tokenize and superficialize a lot of these things. And then to still just blatantly disregard the rights of Palestinians is absolutely fascinating.
4: You know, it's, it's safe. That's the thing. You know, uh, I'm reading now, um, Brown Kendi's book, uh, uh, how to be a, not an anti-racist. And, um, it's very interesting. It's very comfortable. It's very, it's, you know, standing and saying, Oh, this used to belong to Native American, Native nations. It's safe. They're never coming back. It's finished. They've been killed. Whatever's left of, of Native uh, Americans and indigenous Americans is not a threat. So it's safe to stand up and support Ukraine is safe because resists, you're standing up to Putin and standing up to Russia is safe. It's part of the narrative. It's okay. It's, you know, it's bringing, it's rekindling all these, old feelings of how he stood against the Soviet Union and, you know, whatever. So it, it's safe to be that kind of a liberal. To stand up and and support the Palestinian struggle is real. In other words, is real. We're talking about people who are still fighting, who are still standing, who make up the majority of the people in Palestine still, who are being oppressed by a by a country and by a society that Americans like to love and like to support. They the Americans love supporting Israel. It's part of the culture. So it's, it's this is like, you know, it's like the difference between saying, "Well, I'm not a racist." And you could be Donald Trump and you can say this or you can really be somebody who's not a, anybody can say it. To say I'm anti-racist, to say I'm anti-Zionist. That's where it's at. And that's not comfortable and that's not safe to do, but that's what we need to do. So people are saying, you know, it's very comfortable today to say, you know, I want peace. It's like Andy Levin, this, uh, you know, the, the congressman who just who just lost his seat. Uh, and he was saying, you know, I lost my seat. You know, J Street supported me and I'm a Jew and I'm a, you know, not progressive. And that's why I lost my seat because I stand for Palestinian rights. He doesn't stand for Palestinian rights. He stands for Israel. Oh, and by the way, he believes in this nonsense two-state solution thing. As long as Israel agrees, as long as it's done by on Israel's terms, as long as bad Palestinians are not participating, only the good Palestinians, are good, you know what I mean. All of these, all of these, um, all of these uh, conditions the Palestinians have to stand by, not saying anything about Israeli violence, not saying anything about Israeli racism or apartheid. Those kind of liberals, it's very safe for them. But to say I'm anti-Zionist, to say I'm anti-racist, it means I stand up and I speak up and I'm going to act is a completely, completely different thing. It's not safe, it's not comfortable, but that's what we need to demand. That's what we need to say. And that's what people where people if people don't stand for that, we're not gonna see an end to racism and we're not gonna see an end to Zionism. And any politicians today politician today who still feel I mean, very few are gonna say, you know, I'm uh I, I support white supremacy. I'm against racism, but I think white supremacists, you know, they have a right to defend themselves. And, you know, white supremacists have a right to, to 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 their self-determination. You know, it's like Trump said, you know, there are very good people there, too, on both sides. No politician today is going to say that, except for Trump and his, you know, people like him. But they can say, I'm I'm a Zionist, but I believe in peace. You, know, you can't be a Zionist <laughs> and believe in peace, unless you're an anti-racist, unless you're anti-Zionist. And again, I'm paraphrasing... Uh, Dr. Kendi here. Yeah, but you have to be an anti-Zionist. It's not enough to say I'm pro whatever peace. Peace is not the issue here. Peace is completely nonsense in this context. You have to be an anti-racist and anti-Zionist. You have to fight and stand with those who fight on the ground to bring an end to Zionism, to bring an end to racism because Zionism is one form of racism. You know. And then they bring up, of course, anti-Semitism, which is a whole other, I think you touched on it in the beginning. People are afraid to be called anti-Semitic. If they stand up for for Palestine You know, whereas Anti-Semitism And anti-racism Are the same thing And anti-Zionism are all the same thing You know what I mean? I mean, opposing anti-Semitism And being an anti-Zionist and being an anti-racist is the same thing. Opposing anti-Semitism, you should oppose Zionism as well.
2: Well, and that's what people have been on the defense for so long, progressive-minded people, by saying, you know, I'm not an anti-Semite, but I support the right of Palestinians. I mean, it's just such a dirty trick to be able to play with the emotions of people who really do have good intentions and want peace and want progressive values to be pursued. And, and so the it's it's outrageous to be put on the defense when Israelis and Zionists need to be put on the defense about you support apartheid. Why do you support exactly. apartheid instead of no, we're not anti-semitic, we are just because of basically of they've made it synonymous with bigotry that that if you support yeah. Palestinian rights then you are the bigot. No, you're the bigot because you support apartheid. And you yeah. support occupation and you support colonial violence and that's when we see this whole controversy continue. Even though the perception of American voters is changing, even though we had unprecedented pro-Palestine demonstrations and people seem to be getting it more and more, the Democratic Party establishment remains unchanged and the mainstream media, the establishment media, the corporate media remains unchanged on this issue. And it's so rigidly still against Palestinian rights and and with the pro-israel narrative and that's when you see people like katie halper losing their job you see this yeah. outrage around rashida talib for speaking plain truths that are backed up by human rights organizations yeah so talk about yeah, the, the, the reality I mean, look, of
4: apartheid too because we
2: need to I mean, like look, get this
4: out of the way I mean, look what happened. Look what happened. I Just, just you know, your, your reference to the Democratic Party. Look what happened in, 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 in the Labour Party in the UK. The Labour Party in the UK, a guy who was one of us, became, became the leader of the Labour Party, right? He was an activist. He never thought, I don't think anybody thought he would reach that point, that he won. And something like five or 600,000 new people joined the Labour Party because he was there. Because they get it. Because people understand, you know, you had, you had, you have, you have people on the ground who supported his perspective, not only in Palestine, on a whole host of other issues. He was like a, you know, real, true, you know, socialist. But the mechanisms of the Labour Party working to get these right-wing Tony Blair types who were right wing in their hearts, wanted nothing to do with socialism, nothing to do with peace, nothing to do with justice anywhere. They, together with the Zionists, managed to bring down this man and bring down the Labor Party completely and destroy it from within. So we could, you could have, you could do a thousand polls and find out that all all Americans or majority of Americans oppose Zionism. You could have a leader, perhaps, I don't know, the American system is different, so maybe not. But in the UK, you had a leader who supports that, who speaks to that. But the mechanism of the party, and the, the the party establishment, did not allow for that to succeed. And the Zionists were certainly not going to allow for that to succeed. And they knew immediately, it was clear immediately, as soon as he was elected, he, he was. He, they were going to take him out. And they did, they did it very successfully and they're very proud of themselves. They're they opening champagne bottles when Jeremy Corbyn lost and the Labour Party in the UK lost. But this is the reality in which they, we, we live. We live in this reality where the the party establishment, even if it's kind, of, it's kind of a more progressive, I don't know if we can call the Democratic Party progressive, but even progressive, maybe progressives even within it, they can't. they're not gonna do, Anything that's going to risk them to that point—it's not that important to them. You know, we still have this very, very strong Zionist uh, support uh, or support for Zionism and this pride to, you know, call themselves Zionism, Zionists, within um, all all these establishments. I mean, e- even the more progressive ones in America, and that's a very serious problem, very, very serious problem. And again, apartheid. It's funny. There, like you said, there are all these different. All these different human rights organizations were stellar human rights organizations who were, you know, highly respected on every other issue, <laughs> s- stating very, very clearly, stating very, very clearly with hard evidence that Israel isn't engaged in a crime of apartheid. You know, I would say differently, I think Israel is the crime of apartheid. They're saying Israel is engaged in the crime of apartheid, fine, they're being a little more careful. You know, and suddenly they have become outcasts. They have become the problem, you know, for saying that. Uh, you know, and it's stupid. All you have to do, I mean, look at the laws that were passed by Israel. You know, the very first laws that were passed when Israel was established. I mean, it's very easy to see. Look at the laws. They were all apartheid laws. It was very obvious that Israel was going to, was fully intending to be an apartheid state. And nobody thought anything of it. You know, and this is just a few short years after, you know, this idea of, uh, of laws that define crimes against humanity were passed in order to try Nazi criminals. A few short years after that, the world is supporting an apartheid regime that is engaged in genocide and ethnic cleansing against another nation, against another people. So, and, and, and the world's fine with that. You know, the world's just okay with it. I mean, it's nothing new. The apartheid regime is nothing new. It's been there for 75 years. We All, all Israelis grew up in, in this apartheid state. You know, granted, I was, you know, on the, on the privileged side. But all you have to do is listen to how people talked and, 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 and the reality in which, to see the reality in which Palestinians lived. So it was obvious that it's an apartheid regime. It's funny that people even still argue that it is. There's nothing to argue. It's an apartheid state. It was intended to be an apartheid state. A Jewish state in an Arab country is going to be an apartheid state. There's no other way to do it. So <laughs> right. you have to take a side. You have to pick a side.
1: Right. And it's uh, the justification for moving to Israel is that the, uh, everyone's fleeing anti-Semitism and Israel is the only safe place, which is a little bit of a contradiction to have people from like Brooklyn and California immigrating to Israel to like flee anti-Semitism in the U.S. and other places in Europe. Uh, But then go to Israel and say, oh, well, we're just we're surrounded by hostile anti-Semitic forces. You just want to kill Jews like, wait, so you flood anti-Semitism to move somewhere where supposedly it's the most dangerous place in the world uh, for Jews. But then the uh, this idea that any support of Palestine is considered anti-Semitic to even call Israel apartheid, which Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, many other uh, respected and, uh, you know, even kind of like centrist human rights organizations have had to come out and admit, um, of course, the the argument that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, which has been so core to Israeli propaganda in the U.S. in particular, because the U.S. is it's, you know, without the U.S. support, Israel would be in a completely different situation than it is now, not just financial, but military and political support. Um, but I think one of the things that has complicated that recently is the fact that a new generation of Jewish Americans are anti-zionist and in a very large way i mean um you know there was recently this big protest at gw university against uh uh israeli speaker by Hillel, and all these israeli politicians were saying oh look how horrible it is to be a, a jew on a college campus in the u.s uh, not mentioning that the protests were like jewish students who were protesting yeah. the event in the jewish center and so it's really complicated things i mean the fact that they the the reliance on the anti-semitism Claim, of course, we got that for our our film um, and all our other work on Palestine. It's, It's really, it seems like it's all there is to fall back on. I mean, I don't know if you had any comment on how they've had to adapt to the fact that You know, like you mentioned, the protests last May, those were the biggest protests in U.S. history in support of Palestine. Like by a lot, they were hugely significant. There's obviously some big shift. We have a Palestinian-American in Congress right now. a couple members of Congress who are are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause because of that. I mean, something is changing, Um, and the Israeli propaganda machine has had to kind of adapt uh, to that, but it doesn't seem that they're adapting super well.
4: Well, I got a call the other day, an email from somebody that I don't know, telling me that Montgomery County, you know, which is Maryland, it's just, just, just next door to D.C., that the council is about to uh, vote on adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And apparently they were going to do it in July, but somebody found out and there was, they received massive emails and they postponed it. Now, they're doing it in secret. They're not really telling anyone when they're going to do it. Oh, wow. And they asked, and they asked me to weigh in, and I'm, I'm thinking. So I, I, you know, I put out a video, and I, you know, I sent up some stuff, and I wrote something up, and I'm like, the, 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 this, this, this campaign that every county in America, every city in America, every, every university, every NGO, every governmental organization has to adopt this new definition, which of course is all about the Zionists adapting. And creating a new reality in which it is now anti-Semitic, clearly anti-Semitic, to criticize Israel, and they do it in a very its they do it in a nice way. So it's called—it's a non-binding—it's uh, a non-binding definition. You know, it's just recommendation. But the reality is that county after county, university after university, state after state are adopting this new definition. Which basically says if you're diligent about Israel, if you call Israel an apartheid state, then you're anti-Semitic. So now you can now now that's why it was so important to 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 define this so that you can say that that um, uh, that amnesty is anti-Semitic and that sort of thing. <laughs> it's not exactly there's not really a direct line between those two things, but you're gonna have to sit there and really split hairs to find out what it exactly says or doesn't say. But it talks about Israel, 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 Israel. As opposed to just talking about, well, racism is a terrible thing and if we're going to fight racism, we have to be anti-racist. We can't support a racist regime somewhere else and call that racism. And that's exactly what they've done. But that's how they adapt. They adapt very well. And that's why they can have all these college campuses uh, calling people like you and me anti-Semitic because we are questioning the legitimacy of a, of a regime, of a state that has been clearly defined as an apartheid state.
2: And this is why they're doing these preemptive measures by passing these anti-BDS laws in more than half the states across the country. And sadly, Miko, um, you know, because of Arkansas's ruling to uphold that flagrantly unconstitutional anti-BDS law, um, it will now be heading to the Supreme Court. And what we've seen clearly evident in the last year is that the Supreme Court has been taken over. There's been a right wing coup That has overridden the highest court in the land. And, you know, if you were to ask me a year or two ago, would the highest court in the land uphold anti BDS laws nationally and enshrine them into national legislation? I would have said no. But now it does look like that is a strong possibility. And that is pretty scary that this could be a federal law um, that bans BDS essentially and completely violates our our free speech and the right to boycott in our constitution
4: yes and i mean you fought your case you fought and won and that was that was really fun to see uh how you fought and won that uh that particular battle i think where was it in, 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 georgia. China, in georgia right yeah. yeah but uh yeah you're right i mean it's madness it's absolute madness this this uh ongoing uh, Insane campaign to delegitimize and, and all these passing all these laws and all these anti BDS laws and pro Israel laws, another pro Israel law, you know, it's they're out of their minds. But you know, what's interesting. In I think it was 2019, the Senate was going to vote on some, I forget what it was, one of these big pro Israel something, something, and it had the BDS segment in it. And there was a speech by Chris Van Holland, who was the junior senator in, from Maryland. It's on YouTube, and he's a super uber, you know, as uh, Zionist, as you can, Israel lover as, as you can be. And he said in that speech, this is the first time the Senate has a, a vote on an issue with regards to Israel, which is not going to be passed unanimously. He said, I cannot vote. There's a red line. I cannot tell my constituents that they cannot boycott. And I think that is the Zionist's worst nightmare, to see somebody who's like that, Who's not like us? He's a total Zionist. He's you know he's you know he's a Democrat, but he's one of these you know very mainstream guys. Believes Israel should get all the money and the weapons on the face of the earth, but he cannot cross that line. And that's really, really. I always tell people to go and watch and listen to that speech that he gave. Yeah, I think it was either 2019 or 2020. It was the first bill out of the Senate, and of course it passed, but it didn't pass unanimously. And you had people like Chris Van Hollen voting against it because he said there's a red line that we cannot cross. First amendment issue. We cannot tell Americans that they cannot boycott, that it's wrong or illegal to boycott. And that was encouraging. I thought that was a moment. That was a really important moment historically. But finally somebody like that sees something, you know, this important, this, this significant.
1: Sadly, we live in the. Batshit United States and that might be uh decided by the Supreme Court nationally very soon. But we're gonna get to some calls right now. Yeah. See if you got questions from miko Um first we're gonna go to who I think is a first time caller, uh Sam. Sam, take yourself off mute and tell us where you are calling from.
5: Uh hi, can you hear me? Hello. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, we can. Yep, yep.
5: Uh yeah, I'm in Los Angeles over in West Hollywood. Um I think I was at a demo that uh, at least Abby spoke at last yeah. year in May. That was Hell a huge one. Oh, yeah, man. One. That was great. I actually uh, I went to the West Bank in 2003 with ISM. I was a classmate of Rachel Corey's when she got killed. Oh, wow. I didn't really know her that well. I had a crush on her, and a friend of mine knew her better and, and uh, was involved in ISM already. But it was kind of like... You know, other than like a couple years worth of kind of slowly warming up to this subject, it was like a kind of initiation for me, like going over there. But I felt like it was necessary to, as an artist, really, to support what she had been doing when I found out how creative and artistic she had been in her life. So anyway, um, you know, I haven't been over since then. It's almost 20 years now. I'm pretty sure I'm not allowed to because everyone that was over there when I was in 2003 got pretty much blocked from reentry when they tried. I'm just wondering, like, what is the right form of protest for this? I don't really hear a lot of people talking about, you know, questioning the kind of strategies on the left and stuff, but it's like, it just feels like getting together, it's powerful and useful, but it just feels like more subversive, creative kind of yes, men style protests would be much more productive on a cultural level. I don't know. Like there's just so many things like the, you know, if I don't steal, is someone else going to steal at moment? There's all these things that have happened that the media is not circulating. But if like we could figure out ways of getting around, I don't know. I just wanted to put that out there as like uh, not to be critical or anything, especially like you guys are doing such wonderful work. But you know, this really hasn't changed at all, except for like ups and downs and the, the, the degree of violence being done to Palestinians since I was there. And I don't know, I'm just con- concerned about like. The kind of lack of strategic, like insight or uh, uh, evolution, happening on the left. I'll leave it at that. If you guys want to talk about it, If it's kind of ambiguous and not really a question. So I understand if not. Thanks for talking.
1: No, that is a great question. Thank you for your call, Sam Miko. Do you got a got any comment on that? Well, no.
4: I, I think I think it's a great comment. He hit the nail on the head. There is no strategy. There is no mm, there are no parents to the Palestinian issue. You know, in South Africa, I just finished reading a great book about Joe Slovo and who's first who were after, you know, Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela, they were like the second couple of, of, of the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, Joe Slovo was a white, they were both white and both Jewish and both communists. Joe Slovo was the chief of staff of the arms wing of the ANC. And Ruth First was a journalist. She was killed by the by the South Africans. She got a, 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 a bomb center in the form of a ladder and she was killed. And, um, and it's, it's a great book because there were incredible people that a lot of people don't know about. But also um, it really shows how it talks about the struggle in South Africa. And there was a very clear there were two groups that were working in unison to fight apartheid. There was the ANC and there was the South African uh, Communist Party. And they did every they worked together. Uh, and it was very interesting because they called it a non-racial struggle. In other words, you didn't have to be black to be part of it. In the blackness it was not the issue; it was the issue of being anti-apartheid, being anti-racist. And both Joslovo and the group that was with him, of course, with first his wife, his first wife was was killed, uh, were were dedicated anti-racists. Uh, and so, but there was a there was an, an establishment. There was an anti-apartheid establishment in South Africa that was made up of these two very important groups. There is no group, there's nobody on the Palestinian issue, you know. There's nothing. Oslo took whatever was left of the PLO and completely threw it to hell. Uh, The Palestinian Authority is a contractor for the occupation, nobody trusts them, nobody wants to work with them anyway, they don't represent anybody, and there's nobody else. There's nothing. Uh, to fill that void. So, of course, we're always 10 steps behind, like I said earlier. And what this what this guy, I'm sorry, the caller, I forgot his name. What he was saying is absolutely true. There is no strategy. There is no strategy. And if somebody has a good idea, they go, oh, let's do a protest. Fine, let's go, boom. Israel commits another massacre in Gaza. Okay, we mobilize and we have a protest. And then it's over. There's nothing to prevent the next attack. There's nothing to prevent the next Shree Nabokna from being killed. There's nothing to prevent. Look, there's doctors, doctor that was killed today or yesterday in, in Janine. Young men, boys are being killed every single day in Nablus in Janine. Um, you know, there's a really wonderful article in Wise about Ibrahim Nabulsi who was killed a couple months ago in Nablus. You know, what a fantastic leader, what a charismatic man he was and so on. There's nothing that is... So then, you know, somebody responds. But there is no, no strategy. There is no sense of moving forward. People still arguing this completely nonsensical argument, one state, two state, and all that kind of nonsense. Um, and there are all these distractions that the Zionists managed to, manage to uh, insert into the camp, you know, our camp, about anti-Semitism, yes, anti-Semitism, no, BDS, yes, BDS, no, all this kind of nonsense. And we're busy fighting about, you know, nonsense as opposed to being busy fighting apartheid being busy fighting racism in Palestine and working with Palestinians who are on the ground you know bleeding to death one of the things I noticed every time I visit Palestine like I said I was there four times already this year uh, the count cal- not enough calendar year but within 12 months um, you know every time I go you go from funeral to funeral to funeral to funeral, to funeral from you know, it's from morning one morning, from family. It's in morning. To another family, it's in morning. To another family, it's in morning. The same pro You know, Shiretela. I've been going to Shiretela protests for twenty, uh, no, twenty years almost.
0: I mean, it doesn't end.
4: And of course, things are getting progressively worse for the Palestinians because Israel is not held accountable, and that's a big problem. And this is precisely why we're in the situation we're in. There is no parent to the Palestinian uh, struggle.
1: Miko, thanks for those comments. We have. A lot of callers on the line now, so we want to make sure to try to get to everyone if we can. And so we're going to ask the next callers to please keep your comments uh, brief, and maybe we'll take a couple calls in a row so we could get through um, a little more. But thanks, everyone, for waiting on the line. And uh, Brady, you're up next. From, thanks for calling
6: it. Hey, I'm calling from Northern California. Hey, Abby, Mike. Hey, Miko. I've been following your work for years, and it's an honor to finally get to speak to you directly. Sure. Um, I, I wanted to bring up um, this, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but I think during the assault on 2014, uh, there was a MIT scientist Theodore Postal from MIT talking about how the iron dome is an iron sieve that, that, that the projectiles have to follow like a very specific trajectory to even attain 5% accuracy but we are sold on this. This is like the only thing that, that is saving Israelis and we need to fund it. And it's just a boondoggle for, uh, I think it's Raytheon that worked together with a defense, uh, with one uh, like a corresponding Israeli defense uh, firm. But uh, Shir haver from the Real News Network, I remember saying that the, a lot of the oligarchy in Israel is dependent on the defense industry. They, they, their wealth comes from the defense industry, and I'm wondering, like, what we can do when there's uh, so much financial incentive for for this to continue when people are making so much money. Like in the U.S., uh, here, uh, over there in Israel, like surveillance also is is, is like tested out on. Palestinians and then like used on uh, like in the militarized border here I'm I'm Mexican and like I I can relate to the struggle like this this issue just really like has called to me for a while now because like I live in what used to be Mexico and I'm treated as an invader even though I'm part indigenous uh, which just drives me nuts but like what can we do Miko uh, when when so much financial incentive uh, is there to continue this occupation?
4: Well, there's always financial incentive in war. That's that's uh, a given. I mean, South Africa governed all of Southern Africa. They had gold, uranium, and nuclear weapons. Uh, and American corporations were making a killing uh, supporting, and nobody wanted to boycott South Africa because everybody was making so much money. Um, but, you know, here we are. Uh the, there was a lot of money being made in uh, the Vietnam War. In fact, there was an American president uh, who said, "We will never, uh, we will never uh, forsake our most important ally in Southeast Asia." Most people today don't even know there was a South uh, a South Vietnam. You know, so I mean, things happen. Even though there's a lot of money to be made in war, and a lot of money to be made in keeping uh, bad regimes alive. Things change, and so we need to just fight. We need to organize. We need to get together. We need to stop. uh, We need, you know, we we, we need to to develop a strategy. We need to have a parent to create a parent for this uh, for for the Palestinian struggle. We need to stop apologizing for Palestinian uh, resistance. In fact, we need to stand up, especially now, one hundred percent. Every post on 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 social media. Every interview, everything there is to say has to be in 100 percent support of Palestinians and their struggle. Stop splicing whether throwing rocks is OK or not throwing rocks is OK, whether using arms is OK, whether using not arms is OK. The Palestinian struggle it has to be supported 110 percent by all of us. Um, and uh, and just, to, you know, that's got to be the story. That's got to be the story. Palestinian lives have to start mattering, you know, mattering. Uh, Palestinian security, Palestinian safety, Palestinian life—the Palestinian resistance has to get our, our backing, 110%. That's what we do. And, you know, I mean, people are going to make money off of war. That's nothing. There's nothing new about that.
1: Maybe uh, someone can. Um, uh, Omar, thanks for your call. Andrew, you're on the line. Where are you calling from?
3: Hey, Abby, Miko, Mike. Uh, I'm calling from uh, Taluka. In, Mex- in mexico state right now cool i appreciate you guys having me go on because otherwise yeah i think a lot of us probably are are appreciative of his work and otherwise wouldn't know where to contact him um but yeah i have a couple questions for the three of you and i'll keep them short one is um miko to your point about somebody needs to step in and support the palestinians more it seems like the obvious um, like national entity nearby would be Iran, but it my guess is that they're you know um, as far as the government is concerned, they're probably already doing whatever they're capable or willing of willing to do. Um, I don't see you know even if if Russia comes out more regionally hegemonic as a result of this war, I don't see them weighing in really heavily, although we did see the their diplomatic teams actually meet with Hamas, which was a pretty seems like a pretty um, unprecedented step, especially for Russia. Um, So, you know, just given that it's absolutely necessary for the U.S. to stop the support of Israel and stop the support of the the colonial project there for it to really end, I think, but given that that's at least 10, 15 years away, even if we work really tirelessly at it, who, who do you see, who could do it? I mean, there's no more Gaddafi. There's no more, um, you know, there's, there's, I don't see a lot of other options for them. So I'm just curious, like who else could step into that gap, even if it's, even if we acknowledge it's profitable. Um, and then my other question is about kind of for running, um, a more proactive narrative and not constantly reacting to uh, accusations of anti-Semitism just for opposing apartheid. I think that the, the fact that for instance, when the Moors were kicked out of Spain um, simultaneously, they also kicked out all of the Jewish population and they went and sought refuge in the Arab world. And there were certainly Jews in Palestine before the European Jews came in to start their, their project of Zionism. I feel like that should be mentioned more often. Like there were already Jews in Palestine. These people have been living here for thousands of years. Um, and and there's, unless you want to start supporting, um, you know, everyone going back to any, any place where they can trace a 23andMe test and claiming it as theirs with military force. I don't think that's a very good argument
1: miko before you answer i know that uh you just texted us that your phone is about to die and so we might lose you here in a second and so maybe um we can give you the the last word here and maybe answer andrew's question and maybe give some closing comments and then um you can get off the line to continue your driving charge your phone maybe we could take some of the extra callers after you're off sorry that uh everyone else on the line can't get a chance to talk to miko but yeah let's um let's hear from you miko
4: yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I did my 23andMe, and I'm 0.4 percent Scandinavian. So maybe I should, you know, go to Scandinavia <laughs> and demand demand my rights. My rights. Um, the rest is, of, of course, Ashkenazi European Jew. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, the whole. Another yeah, well, thing that Zionists did is they completely distorted the history of Jews in, in the Middle East. I mean, there's a now a new curriculum that is being taught in Israeli school, which is the genocide of the Jews in the Middle East in the Arab world, which, of course, is completely fictional. Uh, Jews lived in Palestine. They lived side by side with Palestinians. In fact, the Jews who were not Zionists who lived in Palestine, mostly ultra-Orthodox community, they rejected Israel and they begged the United Nations to give them some kind of a status. They did not want Israeli citizenship when Israel was established.
0: They knew, they said,
4: this whole idea of a Jewish state in Palestine is going to destroy the good relations that Jews have with Arabs and has nothing to do with them. Uh, but Jews lived, you know, the Jewish communities in Baghdad, in, in, in Damascus, in, in all of North Africa, in Algeria, and everywhere, in mm-hmm. Yemen, and of course, the Zionists destroyed all of them but uh, yeah I mean I, I don't I don't think I, I don't think we should look at Russia or Iran or, or anybody because all these other powers all these other actors have their own agenda and uh, I don't think Palestine should be part of somebody else's agenda I think Palestinians and the those of us who support justice in Palestine uh, can do a pretty good job in putting together a strategy and putting together a Movement that is uh, uncompromisingly anti-Zionist, uncompromisingly pro-justice, uncompromisingly pro-liberation of Palestine, uh, and uncompromisingly willing to fight for these—you uh, know—for these things. We just need to get together and organize and do it. And I think that's where we lag behind. Um, and in closing, again, I, I'm sorry I've got to jump off here, uh, but uh, in closing. I gotta thank you guys again for for you know you know having this interview. It's always you know fantastic to talk to you guys, both of you. I have a lot of uh, you know love and admiration for the two of you. And uh, and and I think we need to keep up the fight. I think we need to become more more uncompromising. There should be no room for Zionism, no tolerance of Zionism at all in our conversation. There should be no tolerance of. Of people who are, uh, not totally behind supporting the Palestinians and their, and their struggle. And, uh, I think that we can do this if we all, you know, get up and work, if we all get up and organize, if we all get up and, and fight for, for the just cause. And I think we're all going to be better, uh, for it when it's, when Palestine is free and when Palestinians are permitted to return to their homes and their, and, and their land. So I, th- I say not just keep up the fight, but let's up it. Let's let's uh, let's work harder. Let's make it costly for the occupation. Let's make it costly for the Zionists, so that they uh, see that you know, so they have no choice but to, uh, uh, to retreat.
2: Miko Paled, uh, always amazing to talk to you. Always very inspiring. Um, to reaffirm why we are doing this and just how important this really is and how it just links to so many other struggles that we face today. Miko Paled, um, the 10th anniversary of his book, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, is out now. Please support Miko's work by the book. Also, his other excellent book, Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. We did an incredible interview with him about that on Empire Files. You can check out. Join Miko's patreon so you can support his diligent journalism and activism where he continues to go on the front lines not only through uh, occupied palestine but exposes the true nature of zionism in israel thank you miko we love you we support you have fun at the protest today post lots of photos and um, keep up the great work
4: thank you guys talk to you soon okay
2: bye, bye miko. miko thanks
1: for joining us
4: bye bye guys
1: abby you uh done take a couple more listening today abby
2: Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is a really uh, important topic that's very dear to Mike and my heart. Uh, We have done so much work on this issue and it's it's just always really devastating to see what's going on. And we have to keep it. We have to keep it at the forefront of our minds. You guys, we have to keep it at the forefront of our political battles and we have to keep the struggle for Palestine. Palestine Liberation intertwined with the with the struggle for social justice human rights across all fronts um, because we need international solidarity on this issue and you know now more than ever before as more and more people are becoming awakened to just the brutal nature of, of colonialism imperialism Empire this is the time to bring this up. To bring up why war is bad everywhere, why resistance is justified, and how we are paying for this brutality every day. Thank you guys so much for joining us on Dosed. We'll see you soon. More Shadia Mansour to take you out.
0: بمنعني بشجعني اعمل العكس انا اختي رجال بس انا صاحبه حق كي بدي اقول عن حالي مقاتله الحريه اذا ببعد عن التحدي اذا بخاطب كلمه لا واجتمعنا مثل توقيت الغرب دايما مؤخر كل ما منوخد دفشي لقدام بدفشونا عشرين قرنه ورا بالنسبه للفلسطيني هالحاله بتحزن اكتر من شهر تشرين الثاني انا عندي امل بالانسان بس الحكي ما بفيد لن اجيب I'm not a human being, it. Supporting the Palestinian in an active way, not sitting in this rituals, endless discussions. We want to uplift
6: the ability of our expression and to deepen our own values to be able to reach you in English, Arabic, cinema, photography,
5: theater. We
0: have to
2: go to stand up again on our feet. I'm calling for your support.